Okay, today is Shavuot of Ted Zion on page 16. We're going to start two lines, the second line down. Um, and it's a quote from our mission. It says, It's talking of the mission was discussing the, the process of expanding Yishalayim or the Azara. Um, and um, what the, we, we mentioned yesterday that this actually happened once in history where they did this. It was when Nehemiah and Ezra together, they they led the Jewish people back from Gaul's bubble, right? And they came um, to rebuild the second base of Mikdash, right? So they, they re-sanctified Yerushalayim. And they, they went through all of these steps. What the Gemara is going to be bothered by in, in the next discussion is that they really didn't have all those steps because we know there was no Melech in the second base of Mikdash. There was also, the Gemara in Yuma says that there was no Urim Fatumim. So the question was, how can Ezra and Nehemiah have sanctif- re-sanctified Yerushalayim without those important um, ingredients, you know? So, the Gemara frames that, a discussion, though, in a, dis- in a dispute um, regarding how to understand the Mishnah. And it says like this, Itmar, it was stated, Rav Huna Amar, <clears throat> Rav Huna said, The way you should read the Mishnah is that you need all of these things, just to review. You need the consent of the Melech, the king, right? The Navi, the, um, the Urim Vitumim, you have to ask. You need the, the consent of Sanhedrin. You need the two um, Toda offerings. And you need Shir. So it was a song to him when we said yesterday. So Rav Huna says you need all of those. Rav Nachman Amarno Ba'achat Mikol Ego Tanan. The way that you should read the Mishnah is that it means you need one of those. You need one of those, that's all. There's six ingredients, you need one of them. And the Gemara goes on to explain, Rafuna Amar, Bakal Elu Tanan, you need all of them, because Kesavar, he holds, Kedusha Rishona, the initial sanctification of Yerushalayim, Kidsha Mashata, it was a sanctification for its time, Vikidsha Liyatad Lavo, and it's also a sanctification for all of future, right? The beautiful, the Kedusha of Yerushalayim is eternal. Okay, no matter what the situation is, even after the Chorban Beis Hamikdash was destroyed, the Galas, right, the 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 the, the sanctity state, um, <clears throat> and therefore, if that if the sanctity state, Ezra and Nehemiah really didn't have to re-sanctify it. So it says, "We Ezra Zecher Avad." He did a Zecher commemoration of what had been done at one time. He figured. Um, you know, that the, probably figured to do that. The reason he did it was, you know, to show the people that, you know, this is now a holy city again. You know, even though it never really lost its Kedusha. But since we're coming back, he wanted to demonstrate that Kedusha to the people. So he did it as a Zaker, as a commemoration. And therefore, Rashi explains, it wasn't a big deal <clears throat> that he was lacking some of the essential ingredients. There was no milk, there's no room for tomb, it was no big deal because it was only a commemoration. It wasn't the real deal. So symbolic. It was symbolic, exactly. Excuse me, Rav Nachman Amr, though. Rav Nachman reads the Mishnah as no bi achat mi kol ego tenan. That really, <clears throat> all you need is one of these things. And why does he say that? Because Kesavar, he holds Kedusha Rishona, the initial sanctification of Yishalayim was Kitsha It was a sanctification for its time, Velo Kitsha And it was not an eternal sanctification, meaning that once there was a destruction of Yisra Mikdash and there was the Jewish people went to exile, it lost its Kedusha. And therefore, Ezra, Kedusha Kaddish, he really sanctified it. It was a real re-sanctification. You had to go slow today. Okay, and he goes on to say, "Afagav, even though the lohevo urim even though there's no urim it was a it was a valid sanctification 
because of, um, you know, you don't need all of those ingredients. So we'll, um, well, just to get you caught up, is that we have a makokit here, Rav Huna and Rav Nachman. We have a, right, a, a dispute over how to read the Mishnah. The Mishnah, we went through the process of, of, of expanding and sanctifying Jerusalem, right, is that you need all of those things that listed in the Mishnah. That's what Rav Huna said. And Rav Nachman says you don't need all of them. You only need one. And, and the Gemara went on to explain that the root of, the, the root of that dispute <coughs> is how is, is because we have an obvious question from Ezra Nechemia, yesterday we learned from Nechemia how to re-sanctify Yerushalayim. The truth of the matter is, is that they didn't have all of the things necessary. There was no Melech in the second Beit of Mikdash. There was no room for Tumim, the Gemara says. So how could they do that? So Rav Huna says, because the initial sanctification of Jerusalem is eternal. Even after the Korban Beit HaMikdash and after, after the Golot, right, it remained. And therefore, um, and therefore, the, all Ezra and Nehemiah did was a Zecher Ba'alma. It was a commemoration of what had been done. They didn't really need to re-sanctify it. And Rav Nachman disagreed. I'm, I'm sorry, that was Rav Nachman. Um, that was Rav Huna, I'm sorry. That was Rav Huna. Rav Nachman disagreed, and he said, no, the initial sanctification was only temporary. And once there was a Korban Beit HaMikdash, it was, it, the, the, the sanctity went off. However, um, and therefore they needed to really re-sanctify it at the time of the second Beit HaMikdash, but you didn't need everything. They only need one of those things, and they had they had a navi, they, they had navium there, they had the Sanhedrin, they they brought the korban todot, and therefore they 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 were able to fulfill the requirements necessary, even though there was no king and no room for tumim. Okay, so the gemara now is going to question Rav Nachman's opinion from a Braita. So just um, an introduction to this. Um, we'll just mention that we've already mentioned that there are certain things that can only be eaten in Yerushalayim. So, for instance, um, by korbanot, there's two types of korbanot. There's kadshe kadashim, the more stricter ones that have to be eaten in the azara itself, in the Beit Hamikdash, and then there's kadashim kalim, which can be eaten anywhere in the confines of Jerusalem. There's another thing that can only be eaten in Jerusalem, and that's called meiser sheni. Right? We know that you have to take off meiser from your produce that you grow in Eretz Israel, ten percent. You give that to the levy during four of the seven-year agricultural cycle that they had the Shemitah cycle, right, years one, two, and four, and five, you also had to give what's called Meiser Shani. But Meiser Shani doesn't go to anybody. Meiser Shani, you eat yourself. It's, it's 10% of your produce, and you eat it yourself, but it has to be eaten within the confines of Jerusalem. So bearing that in mind, those two things, Kadashim Kalam and Meiser Shani, have to be eaten within Yerushalayim. So eight vei Rava Rav Nachman. Rav now asks a kasha, a, a difficulty on Rav Nachman from the following bright. Again, Rav Nachman was the opinion that the sanctity of Jerusalem was temporary. So he says, it says like this, Kol shalom naset b'kol evo. Whoops, I... Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sorry. You know, I introduced that... that the, the, this is actually... Uh, uh, he, he first questions him from our Mishnah before we get to the bright. I'm sorry, I jumped the gun. And and our Mishnah said the words It said explicitly that you, any addition to Jerusalem that wasn't done with all of these ingredients is not a valid addition. And therefore, how can Rav Nachman say you only need one? It's explicitly in the Mishnah you need all of them. And to that, the Gemara says, okay, You know what? Amend the simple reading of the Gemara is to amend the text, and what the Mishnah really meant to say was, you only need one of them. Okay, Rav Nachman gets out of that. 
Now the Gemara quotes another Brighta. It says, Tashima, come and hear from this Brighta. Abishol Omer. Abishol said, Shnei Bitsayan, Hayubahara Mishcha. There were two marshes, like swamps, whatever that were, on Mount, Mount Mishcha. Mishcha means anointment. So you know what it first refers to? You anoint with oil. It refers to Harzaitim, right? The Mount, Mount Olives in Yerushalayim. Another connection to Hanukkah for today. Okay? So there were these two marshes there. Tachtona, you know, you know how Harzaitim, we've been there, right? It's right next to Harabayan. It's right outside of the confines of the, what we call now the, the old city of Jerusalem, right? So, so he says, so it's right on the border. Basic, we have old Jewish, old Jerusalem. So it says Tachtona, the lo, there was Tachtona and Velyona. There was a lower marsh and a higher marsh. Tachtona, the lower one, Nitkadsha Bekol Ego. It had been sanctified as part of Jerusalem with all of these right um, elements that were necessary that the Mishnah says. They actually did add on to Jerusalem in that time. And it was during the first Beit HaMikdash, and they extended the wall around this marsh. Elyona, but the upper marsh, Lo Nitkadsha. <clears throat> it was not sanctified with all these. Ella rather be only gola by those who came back from the exile of, of, Bab- of Babylonia, right? Um, they they annexed it to Jerusalem, but they weren't able, of course, to um, have all of the things necessary for the addition. Why Shaloba Melech? There was no king. Shaloba Urim Betum. So they're referring no here to Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah, right, but right. the second one. And apparently, uh, from Rashi, it seems like they also then built another wall around the upper one at that time. So they annexed it, but they didn't do it with all of the things necessary. The bottom one, though, so there were like two walls. There was a wall around the bottom one and a wall around the upper one. The bottom one was really part of Yishalayim. The upper one wasn't. So the Brayta goes on to say, Tachtona, the lower one, Shahayata Kedushata Gemura, its sanctity was complete. Ameha Aretz, Right, Amiaritz are the ignorant people, right? And um, in, by Chazal, they, when they speak about Amiaritz, not only were they ignorant, but probably as a result of their ignorance, they weren't necessarily very medactic. They weren't careful in halacha. They did things that were right incorrect. So it says Nichnasim Lasham. They would enter into that area, Vi'ochlin Sham Kadashim Kalam, and they would eat the korbanot that could be eaten in all of Yishalayim. And that was a correct thing that they did because it really was part of Yishalayim. Avalo Maser Sheni. But they wouldn't eat my sersheni in that. I'm going to explain why in a moment, but I want to show you a contrast first. Bichaverim, literally means friends, colleagues. That, the Chazal used that term to refer to the Talmudic Chachamim, to the Torah, to the scholars. Comrades. <coughs> what? Comrades, comrades right. Comrades. <laughs> exactly. So the Chaverim, they again would eat the korbanot that could be eaten in Jerusalem, or my sersheni, and they would eat my sersheni. It's interesting, the Amayarits were more strict than the Talmudic Chachamim over here by my sersheni. So why were the Amayarits strict? It's very interesting that even though the Amayarits didn't know everything. They knew some things. And one of the things they knew, there's a very famous drasha that's based on a pasuk by Maser. It says, Aser bishvil shetit asher, that you should take off Maser in order that you become wealth. Okay? Everybody knew that. That was a zechot, right, for getting wealthy. And everybody wanted wealth. So the Amayarets were very careful. The Amayarets, at least, that did take off Maser, they were very careful about it. So they saw that this Part of Yushalayim, like it was sort of like it had been extended. So, you know, like maybe it's really not part of Yushalayim, maybe it is. No, by Maiser, we really want to get this chut for the wealth. So, they wouldn't be careful not to eat it there. They ate it in Yushalayim proper. 
the Chaverim, the Talmud Chum, who knew the Halacha, they knew it was really part of Yishuaim, they had no problem eating it there. You know, it's very interesting that, you know, somebody said once, and really, the Gemara really says something along these lines as well, that really any idiot can be strict, right? Oh, because yeah. I'm not, I don't I know the halacha. You need a gadol to be uh, right. Kill. You need a gadol, right? You need to have broad shoulders yeah, to be yeah, lenient, yeah, yeah. right? It's to really famous. know the halacha. Yeah. 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 So anyway, the is that um, where is that? Where, this is not where. It, I mean, we we talk, we use that, but that's yeah. not. There's a, there's a gemara in a few places which says koach hetera adaf. That says yeah. the, stri- the, the the strength of being uh, permitting something is is greater than. Let's just talk about Rav Moshe that way. Yeah. You know, yeah, Ramosha. Ramosha was a big make He could be made. Right. Right. There was an example we talked about the other day where he said in one of his post post uh, words Psak, Psak, Psakim. Yeah. That, that, that a doctor who for Kuach Nefesh goes on Shabbat, drives his car to see a patient, uh, yeah. is permitted to drive his car yeah. back yes. after he's done. Yeah. And and actually he, he said but he's actually being strict. He says, "I'm machmil." Yeah, because on the next time, the next that time, you don't that's hesitate. Ex- exactly, exactly. So. There's a gemara that's like that. Obviously, doesn't talk about cars, but it talks about being mechalal shabbos for you know for a reason that to get to a certain place that you're also allowed to go back for that same reason because it would discourage you in the in the in the um, in the next case, right? Next case, a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we learned that. That's Rabbi Moshe Tendler always said. Bashin, his father-in-law. Yeah, he always yeah, talked. Yeah. That's a very yeah. famous. Yeah, we learn out that. Yeah, Moshe Tandler, That's one of the most famous things we learned from <laughs> Moshe. That he, he, was, he was, you know, he's a PhD. Ram Moshe Tandler, a very famous right. biologist, but he always spoke about it's medicine, and medical ethics. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was an interesting. <laughs> thing. Yeah. So I lived in Muncie for many years. So. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I know him a little bit. Okay. Anyway, El Yona, the. The, 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 that was the bottom marsh, which was really part of Yushalayim. El Yona, the, the top marsh, which had a wall around it, but it wasn't really part of Yushalayim. Shalohaita could do Shatel Kimur. It didn't have complete sanctity. Ameha Aretz, the ignorant people, Hayunik Nashim Sham, they would enter into that area. And again, they, did the, they treated it the same way. The Oakland Sham Kadashim Kam. When it came to the Korban, you can use Yushalayim. Ah, there's a wall around it. We'll eat there. Because they didn't really know it wasn't part of Yushalayim. But Maestro Shini, again, they were very careful about it. They wanted to make sure they'll get that uh, segula, that, that merit for wealth, right? V'chaverim, when it came to the Talmud Chamim, who knew the halacha, so ain't Oakland Sham, lo kadashim kalim, v'lo Maestro Shini. They would eat neither the korbana nor the Maestro Shini there because they knew it wasn't really part of Yishalayim. So it's a very interesting um, situation. Now, the Brayta goes on and asks a question. Umivnei man lo kidshua. Why, in fact, didn't they sanctify the upper one? Right, they put a wall around it. So the bright answer Shain Mosif and Allah here because you can't add on to the city of Jerusalem, the Allah Azarat, or on the um <coughs> excuse me, onto the courtyards. Unless you have all these things. You have the kings, you have the and they didn't have a king in the second Beit HaMikdash, you need the Navi. Okay, they had a prophet, they had prophets. They didn't have a Rumbatumim. The Sanhedrin of seventy one elders, they had that. And keep going with Todot. There were two Thanksgiving offerings. They had that Bashir, and they had to sing the songs from Tehillim, which they probably had. But they didn't have all of these things, and therefore they couldn't do it. The Brayta goes on to say, Vilama Kitshua. So why did they sanctify it? So the Gemara says, So the Gemara actually now interrupts the Brayta here and asks the question, Lama Kitshua. Why did they sanctify it? Ha Amr, you just said a moment ago, Lo Kitshua, that they didn't sanctify it. Ella, rather, the Gemara now explains, this is what the Brayta meant. Lama hichnisua. 
Why did they bring it into Jerusalem? In other words, if it really wasn't part of the halachic Jerusalem, why did they bother building a wall? It just confused people. It confused the Amayarids that they could eat korban up there. So the, the, the Breita now, back to the Breita, it answers, Mivnesha Torfa Shal Yerushalayim Hayata. Because it was literally the naked part of Jerusalem. If they would have left that out, it would have been easy for enemies to come, right, and attack and conquer Jerusalem from that. It was a high point. Think of the Golan Heights, okay? Right? It was a strategic point. And that's why they included Jerusalem, not for halachic purposes, but for right, security purposes, basically. Right? It was, it was the first wall built for security. Okay, so um, anyway, the um, we see from this brighter though very clearly, it's saying like Rafuna's opinion that you need all of the ingredients in order for Jerusalem to in order to add on to Jerusalem. It's very very explicit in this brighter. You can be make it for security. So you can be make it for security, but it didn't make it Jerusalem halachic way. Right. That's the thing. You know, you could make the wall. I, I don't know. They probably should have put up signs. You know, like can't eat korbanot over here. You know, I don't know, but um. <laughs> yeah, because the Amorites were obviously confused about it. But anyway, so that, that's a proof to Rav Huna. But what is Rav Nachman going to do? Rav Nachman says you don't need all of these things. So why, according to him, they could have really halachically annexed the upper marsh. So the Gemara says, you know what, Tanahi, you know what, you're right. You have a Brita, Rav Nachman says, that supports you, Rav Huna. But you know what, don't worry. There's a Machloka Tanayim. There's two different opinions amongst the Tanayim. And I also have support. So what's his support? So... Um, just to introduce this, I think we know that the structure of the Mikdash, so it was basically an open area. It's a courtyard, we call it Nazara, and there was a wall around the whole thing. Now, inside, like I said, it was mostly open. The Mizbeach was out in the open, the altar, but there was one structure that was covered, and it was known as the Heichel, right? The sanctuary. And in the Heichel, there was a Kodesh, and the Kodesh Kodesh, and the Holies, and the Holy of Holies. Okay, so we're going to talk about how they rebuilt the second Beit Mikdash now. It says the Tanya, we learned in the Bright, the Amr Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer says, Shamati, I heard, Rashi says, from my teachers, Kishahayu Bonim Beheichel. When they were building the second Beit Mikdash, and they were building the Heichel, the um, sanctuary, they made curtains where they put curtains up at the, at the beginning for the Heichel, where it would be, and they put curtains around the entire where the Azar would be, before they had walls. And Rashi says right now, <clears throat> the bright that we understand this to mean um, that so they could bring Korbanot. In other words, temporarily, while they're building it, at least it, it was a functional Beit HaMikdash. Ella, but he goes on to say, when they, when they were building the wall in the sanctuary, they would build it on the outside of the curtain. But in Yazara, they would build on the inside. Why they did this? Rashi says, because the Hechol was meant to be covered. It, was meant, right, it wasn't meant to, for public view. So it would be appropriate for the builders, the construction workers, right, to be gazing in that area. So therefore, they had the curtain, and they built outside the curtain, so they didn't look inside. The Azara was meant to be an open area. Anybody from the public could see it, and therefore, they built on the inside. That was Rabbi Lezer's statement. Amr Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Yeshua comes along. He says, Shemati, I heard something else. Shemak Rivim, this is unbelievable. Shemak Rivim, you could bring Korbano. Avo Bishain buy it, even though there is no structure there at all. No Beit HaMikdash. Oakland Kadshe Kadashim. You could eat Kadshe Kadashim or the Korbano that had to be in the Beit HaMikdash. Avo Bishain Kwayim, even though there are no curtains around it. 
Kadoshim Kalam Bu Meiser Sheni, the Korbanot could be in anywhere in Jerusalem, and Meiser Sheni. Abo Pishain Choma, even though there's no wall. You don't need the structure. Why? Mivnei, Rabbi Lazar says, Shekidusha Rishona, Kitcha Lashata, Vikitcha Lashat Lago. That the initial sanctification of Jerusalem was not only a sanctification for the time while the Beit HaMikdash stood, but it was an eternal sanctification. Right? Jerusalem always so remains I've heard holy. Kohanim, you know, the, uh, yeah. those who uh, they have something there. Right. Oh, what, to bring Karbana? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm just. <laughs> yeah. So there's another problem, halakhically, because, you know, you're not supposed to really go on to Harabayat or go up to the Makam HaMikdash if you're in the state of Tuma. Yeah, we're all right. in the state of Tuma. Yeah, in the Paraduma. So, um, but, but actually, I think the Rambam actually brings this down. Like, Rabbi Yeshua, you ta- technically can bring Karbana without the structure. Right. But it, yeah. it, 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 it sort of makes sense, because, right, in a, a logical way, because the Kedusha is there. The walls are a physical um, boundary, boundary yeah. to, 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 to delineate, to show you yeah. where the Kedusha is. Right. But, but you remove the walls, the kedusha is still it's intrinsic, there. Right. It's intrinsic. It's intrinsic. Right. 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 And so it makes sense. Right. It's a beautiful the, idea, actually. Right. <laughs> the, the, the walls yeah. are, don't make the kedusha. Yeah. The walls are yeah. simply there to yeah. warn you where the kedusha is. Exactly. Very good. So, but this was a statement of Rabbi Yeshua. Rabbi Yeshua said this in response to Rabbi Lazar. So, because of that, the Gemara makes an inference. It says, "Lab miqual." Does that not infer to Rabbi Lazar's supper? Rabbi Lazar disagrees with this point, and he holds that really the sanctity was not forever. <clears throat> the sanctity went away after destruction, and therefore you would now Rav Nachman would have a Tana that backed him up. And to that, the Gemara answers. I said, "Amrulei Ravina Ravashi." Ravina said to Ravashi. Mimai, from where do you see this? Dilmar, perhaps. The Kule Alma, everybody agrees. Kedusha Rishona Kitchel Ashata, but Kitchel Atulavo. Everybody holds that the sanctity was eternal. Even Rabbi Eliezer. Umar, my Dishmiel, and this master, what he had heard from his Rebbeim, he said over. He heard that the way about the, how they built the Beit Hamikdash, and Mar Mardishmiel Lekamer, and Rabbi Yeshua heard said over what he heard from his rabbin, which was that you could actually bring korbanot without the walls. The only problem with this is if Rabbi Lezer also agrees that the kedusha was forever, um, then why did they have to put up the curtains at all? So that's what the Gemara asks. If you're going to say, So why do you need these curtains if the Kedusha existed without them? So he says, It was merely for privacy. Because again, you know, it's supposed to be, right, not such a public area. But certainly the Hegel is not public at all. Even the Azar, it should be right, semi-private. And therefore they put up these curtains. Okay, anyway, we've rejected that as a source of a tana that supports Rav Nachman, so the Gemara tries again, and it says Elahani tonight. It must the, the Machloket is amongst the following tanayim. Now, um, to introduce this is that we know there's a <clears throat> concept of walled cities, right? It was a it was a much bigger thing in the ancient world for security purposes that they had walled cities, and walled cities, the Torah says, have certain halachot that apply to them. <coughs> excuse me, that don't apply to other places. So, for instance, we know that if a person owned land in Eretz Yisrael, their ancest- ancestral homeland, right, that they had gotten when they first, uh, from their, from when Eretz Yisrael was divided, when they first conquered and entered it. Um, so if you sell that land, we know that it reverts back to the owner in the, the Yovel year, in the Jubilee year. But if you own a home 
in a Erechoma, in a walled city, and you sell it. So you're given one year to redeem that, that home, right? You could force the buyer to redeem. I guess I think you have to pay fair market value again, but, right? but he has to sell it back to you. But if one year goes by and you don't redeem it, you lose it permanently. Even in the oval year, it doesn't go back to you. That's a special halacha about walled cities. The second halacha is something I think you might know about um, a person who has sarat, right, the skin disease. So he has to leave. He has to go chutz outside of the encampment. So in a walled city, that means he has to be outside the walls. And the third halacha was that when you had a walled cities, it was very interesting. They had to weave a 1,000 amma, which is about 2,000 feet, um, belt around the city, all four sides, um, that was non-cultivated. <clears throat> a green belt. It was for aesthetic purposes. And um, so those three halachot apply to a walled city. So bearing that in mind, let's learn this following bright. The Tanya we learned in the bright. Amr Rabbi Yishmael, Rabbi Yosi. Rabbi Yishmael, the son of Rabbi Yosi, said, Lama manu et elo. Now, this bright is referring to um, a Mishnah in Erechen. Okay, coming attractions. We'll eventually get to it, I don't know, maybe a couple of years from now. So towards the end of Shas. Mm-hmm. And um, in Erechen, it, there's a, a mission that lists eight cities that had a wall from the time of Yeshua ben Nun where all these halachot apply to. So mm-hmm. the, br- there's the later on, there's the Purim. Yeah, yeah, by Purim also, that, 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 that was a later halacha, rabbinic law, that yeah. they celebrate the next day, right? Shushan Purim, very good. Mm-hmm. So... <clears throat> the Brighton now asks, why do they count specifically these eight? Really, because in fact, there were many more than just eight cities. <clears throat> so he goes on to say, when the people came back from the Babylonian exile, they found these, and they re-sanctified them as walled cities. It's interesting. We not, have not talked about this concept. We talked about sanctifying Jerusalem or the Azara. But we see even for walled cities, you need a re-sanctification. Rashi states over here, this is a very comforting Rashi. He says, I have no idea how they did this. <laughs> because it's nice to hear when Rashi doesn't know something, you know, it makes us feel better. But he says, I, I don't know how they did it. You know, because seemingly they couldn't do the same um, they have none of the components. Right, didn't, yeah, and, and they certainly didn't, they couldn't they carbon out. The carbon, right. This is outside of Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah. So, like, what, you know, so he's not sure how it was done. But there was a sanctification process. Aval, um, Aval Rishonot, he says, the first cities that, that existed, you know, with the first temple, Batlo, Misha, Batlo, Aretz. They were nullified when the land was nullified, when we went to Galat. So what do we see? Alma, we see clearly Kisavar, he holds Kedusha Rishona. The initial sanctification was a Kitshilashite. It was only a temporary <coughs> sanctification, but low Kitshilashite level, and not for future generations. So that is Brighta number one, Uraminhi. But I'll ask you a contradiction from Brighta number two. It says, Amr Rabbi the very same person. He said, Are you telling me these are the only eight cities that were walled for the times of Yeshua? Valokavar Namar already says, it's a Pasuk in. In the Chumash, when it, it, in in Parsha Devarim, I give you the pesukim if you want to look at the whole pasuk. But the um, it's describing when they conquered Og. Remember, they conquered Og Malkabashan and they took his land. So it says Shishim Ir called Argov. There were sixty cities in the region of Argov, Mamlekat Og Bibashan, the kingdom of Og in this in the place called Bashan. Called all of these sixty cities. Arim Bitsurot, there were fortified cities, Choma Gavoa, that had a, a, a high wall. 
So we see there were 60 cities they had. Why are there only eight listed in the Mishnah? So why did the Chachamim specifically count these? Because when the people came back from, again, the, the Babylonian exile to Eretz Yisrael, they found these, and they, they, sanct- they re-sanctified them. So the Gemara asks, the Gemara interrupts the bright and asks, Kidsham Hashta? You're saying they sanctified them now? The bright itself, this very same bright is going to say a little bit further on, the that they didn't need to re-sanctify them. The sanctity remained. Ella, rather, the Gemara explains, this is what the bright meant. Matsu Ewo, they found these. In other words, on the path, on the travels back from Bubble to Eretz Yisrael, they happened to encounter these eight cities. They didn't encounter the other ones. Umanam, and therefore, when they, these, these cities like were, you know, they were dear to them. You think about it, you're, you're, the road back to Jerusalem, the road back to Eretz Yisrael, right? all the stops along the way, you know, you recount them. So that's why they mentioned those specifically, because those were dear to them. He reminded them of coming back from Galat. But the Breiter goes on to say, it wasn't just these eight cities that have these halachot that apply to them. Any, any city that you have a misora, a, 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 a solid tradition from your forefathers, that was surrounded by a wall from the days of Yehoshua, call mitzvot, the three mitzvot that we mentioned before, no hagat ba will apply to them. Why? Mifnei, because the Brayta concludes, the initial sanctification was not only a sanctification for that time, but it was an eternal sanctification. So we see you have two Brayta that talk about these, the walled cities. The first Brayta, which was Rabbi Shmuel, Rabbi Osei's opinion, said that it was only temporary, the Kedusha, on these walled cities. The second Brayta says, it was also Rabbi Shmuel, Rabbi Osei, it was permanent, it was eternal. So it's a contradiction between Rabbi Yishmael and Rabbi Yosei. So the Gemara says two answers. If you want, you could say, trade tonight, I'll leave it to Rabbi Yishmael and Rabbi Yosei. It was a makhluk of what Rabbi Yishmael and Rabbi Yosei said. Right? There was a confusion of what he said. I know one guy left to share early, I guess, you know, before he got to the conclusion, you know. <laughs> but, and he came, he, he understood Rabbi Yishmael and Rabbi Yosei say one thing, and another time I understood Rabbi Yishmael and Rabbi Yosei holding the opposite. So it was a makhluk at what he held. Or Ibayadema, alternatively, Chadaminayo, one of these two, a name we will see, it's the second Brita, was it was, a, it was a textual mistake in the Brita. It's not supposed to say Rabbi Shemal Brebiosi, but Rabbi Elmazar Brebiosi. They confused the names. Mm-hmm. Um, or he was the one who said the second Brita. And where do we find that he holds like that? The Tanya, if we learned in the Brita, Rabbi Elmazar Brebiosi, Omer. He said, okay, here, I want to show you this pasuk inside. Um, is that today? Um, so I gave you all of the mikrat, all of the pasukim that we have from today, but this is the only time I'm really going to refer, no, that's yesterday's, but this is the only one I'm going to refer, yeah, yeah, to um, inside. If you look at the second, the second pasuk, Vayikra Chafei, it's in Parsha B'chukotai. It says, this is the halacha of you have to redeem uh, a city, uh, I'm, I'm a house within a year, or you lose it. So it says, Im lo yigal ad malot lo shana, mima, if you don't redeem it, right, after, until the whole year goes by, v'kam habayit asher b'ir, asher lo choma, v'tzmitat, l'kona otel v'doratav, lo yotze then it will go permanently over to the other, to the person who um, acquired it. So, 
it says, Ashir lo choma. Lo, it's written in the Torah, Lam and Aleph, which means it doesn't have a wall. That doesn't make any sense. We're talking about walled city. Mm-hmm. So there's a tradition that when we read this, we read it as though it's written Lamed Vav. Lo, to him, meaning to it. To it had a wall. It's saying the exact opposite. Can you tell me the difference in pronunciation between Lamed Aleph and Lamed Vav? <laughs> I can't do it. But apparently, I don't know, there is a slight difference. To me, they just they sound the same. I, well. ba- I barely can hear the difference between an I and an Aleph. Yeah. But my wife. Okay, maybe. Tells so you we need a okay. difference. I figured, you know, you, you might um, be able to do it. But apparently, there is a slight difference in pronunciation. So this is what's known as a creative, where we have it written one way in the Torah and pronounced another way. Right. So um, there's different ways of, of expounding this. But Rabbi Yosh, it's going to be Rabbi Lezer, Rabbi Yosi is actually going to expound both words here. Both the low with the Aleph and the low with the Vav. It has a wall, it doesn't. How is that? Let's, let's look back inside the Brighton. Again, so the Tanya, we learned in this Brighton, the bottom line, Rabbi Lezer, Rabbi Yosi, Omer, Asher, Lo, Chomi. You see the way the Gemara wrote it? With both the Vav and the Aleph. To show What it's saying is, Even though it doesn't have a wall now, Lamed Aleph, as long as it had a wall before. That's a, so in other words, it, as long as it once had a wall, even if it doesn't have the wall, it still is a wall city. So we see Rebbe Lezer is of the opinion that the original Kedusha is a Kedusha for generations. It stays. So therefore, the Gemara is suggesting that the second Brita, right, was not Rebbe Shemal, but Rebbe Yosei, it's Rebbe Rebbe Lezer Rebbe Yosei. But be as it may, whether it's a makloka between Rabbi Shmuel and Rabbi Lazar, or it's two opinions within Rabbi Shmuel. We see there is a makloka tenayim whether or not the sanctity of Jerusalem is is forever or it was just temporary, and therefore we have a tana that, that supports both Rav Huna and Rav Nachman. But the question is: Is there an avodah You're learning out that about a walled city that it maintains its kedusha, whether it has a wall or not, because it used to have a wall, right? But Yerushalayim is a different madrega. That is a really good point. <laughs> Yeah, that really is a very good point. I don't have a good answer for you. The Gemara, obviously, this the Gemara is understanding that one is dependent upon the other. But you, I could see the distinction you're making. The distinction you're making is that even if you want to say that um, there's an opinion by the walls of these, they lose their Kedusha, maybe Jerusalem is different. It's a more inherent Kedusha. Because the walls, right, going back to what, what you said before, right, the walls are just there to demarcate the Kedusha, as opposed to a walled city. There the walls are to cre- make it a walled city. And so we you also can see that it loses the wall. Our tradition not, is yeah. that the walled cities are from Yahushua. Yeah. That's from creation. Yeah. Yeah. The Yerushalayim, right? Yeah. The, yeah, the, it's true. So it, it's true. It, it's a good point. You know what? I'm believing that if I get a chance to see if anybody like asks this question, because the Gemara only supports Rav Nachman from yeah. a walled city, and you could make a distinction between that and Jerusalem. Okay. By so it's way, a valid this, question. I don't have a great answer for it. And aside, and yeah. I apologize, by the way. I'm. I'm going to exit at 7 because I'm going to go. I also, you're going to yeah. go. I'll just drive faster. Yeah. I'm going to go to a shiva. Okay, we're, we're going to go. We're going to do this I, quicker. I, but I, and, and now I'm going to delay something. <laughs> That's fine. But I, but I, I, I know, uh, I heard from someone who knows for a fact that one time the Lubavitcher Rebbe was giving someone an answer on, uh, on, on a question they asked what they should do something. And he said, Lo mitanalef. 
<laughs> yeah, going from mid and Aleph, yeah. So yeah because he, just to be clear. Yeah, to be queer, yeah. That's he knew this Gemara, you know, like you could read it two ways. Very good. Okay. Nitma ba'azara v'nelma mimenu tuma v'kuei. That was a quote from Mishnah. Remember, we talked about if a person became Tomei in the azara itself, what happens? So we, we discussed that he really has to leave as soon as possible. So the Gemara asks the question, from where do we know that that's really true, that there's a prohibition of staying in the Beit HaMikdash once you're Tame? You know, it seems obvious to us, but Rashi points out, you know, the Pasuk says, you should not contaminate the encampments, right, that would... And to one of those encampments is the Beit HaMikdash itself, right? So he says in the case where you became Tomei in the Beit HaMikdash, it already is contaminated. So maybe the prohibition doesn't apply there. So how do we know the prohibition of staying applies there as well? So Amar Rebbe Rebbelezer says simply, it says, Katuv Echad Omer, one of the Pesukim says, in, it's in Parshat Chukat, which the beginning of Parshat Chukat deals a lot with the laws of Tumah. It says, Et Mishkan Hashem Tamtimei. The Mishkan, the tabernacle of Hashem, you have, you have um, contaminated. Vakatub Echad Omer, there's another Pasuk that says, also over there, Kiet Mikdash Hashem Timei. The, the, um, the Mikdash, the temple of Hashem, you have um, contaminated. I'm going to read the parentheses because it makes it. Um, easier. Now, Mishkan and Mikdash are really interchangeable. The Gemara is really going to point that out. And therefore, why does it say it twice? So we say, If it's not going to be applied for bringing something that is Tameh from the outside into the Beit HaMikdash, Apply it to when the tumor was inside. So it's from this double, from this repetition of the of this idea in these two pesukim that we learn out. There's a prohibition of tarrying in the Beit Hamikdash once if you become tamei there as well. So the Gemara though asks, really, can you learn from the extra pasuk for kroy miyatre? Are you telling me that though, that there's that's an extra pasuk? Right, that says it twice. Behind Mitzrik Srichi, we need both of them for the following. The Tanya, as we learned in a brisa, Rebbe Lazar Omer, Rebbe Lazar says, you know, Im Namar Mishkan. If it would have only said Tabernacle, I'm sorry, Im Namar Mishkan, Lama Namar Mikdash. Why does it have to say Mikdash? Im Namar Mikdash. And if it says my temple, right, Lama Namar Mishkan. Why does it say Tabernacle? So he says beautifully. He says, no, Ilu Namar Mishkan. If it only talked about the Tabernacle in 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 terms of a prohibition of of going in, of contaminating it. Velo Nemar Mikdash, it didn't say the temple. Hayiti Omer, I would have said, Al Mishkan It's only for contaminating the Mishkan you would be liable. Shahare Mishuach B'Shemen HaMishcha. You know, the Mishkan had something that the Tveta Mikdash didn't have. It was anointed with the anointing oil at the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, right? And therefore, it was holier in that sense than the Beit Mikdash. Al Mikdash Lo and I wouldn't be liable for contaminating the Beit Mikdash. That's why I might have thought. And therefore, the Torah had to say, no, it even applies by the Mikdash. The Im Namar Mikdash, if it only said the temple, the Lo Namar Mishkan, it didn't say the tabernacle, Hayiti Omer, I would say, Al Mikdash Yehechayim. It's only for the Beit Mikdash that you're going to be liable because the Beit Mikdash has something that the Mishkan didn't. Shahari Kedushata Kedushat Olam. The, the sanctity was forever by the Beit Mikdash. The Al Mishkan Lo um, okay, what does that mean that the Kedusha was forever? So Rashi understands to mean, you know, historically in the days that we had the Mishkan, there were some times where a person was allowed to bring Korbano at a private altar called a Bama, 
Mm-hmm. There were certain times that it was allowed. Once the Beit HaMikdash was built by Shlomo HaMelech, Bamot became forbidden forever and ever. So we see, Rashi says, that the Kedusha was forever. Tosfut says a little bit different, by the way. He says that it was the place that even if the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, if we'd ever rebuild the Beit HaMikdash, it would always be on the same same place again. We wouldn't move places. The Mishkan, you know, moved from place to place. So the Kedusha was forever by the Beit HaMikdash. So that, and, that kind of <coughs> answers the question about the Kedusha and the walls. And the... Yeah, so, so but, when, but you could, what, even what Tosfot is saying, with the Kedusha is forever, it's not necessarily saying that the sanctity remained. What he means is it that will, if be, we, in that it will be in that same place. It, That's it what it, you, you yeah. have no other option. Yeah, you have no but other option. They're options. already alluding to a distinction, because they're talking about the Mishkan, yeah. and contrasting it with the Beit HaMikdash. Yeah. So if you're even talking about a distinction between the makom of right. the Beit HaMikdash and the Mishkan, because it doesn't have the same makom all right. the time, right. then you could learn out that, the, the, how can you learn out from the walled cities? You know, Going you, back to that, yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking, well, yeah. I'll let you, yeah, yeah, if I yeah. have time, I'll look for Okay, that. fine. I'm going to think about it more. It's a really good question, yeah. Okay, so... Um, so, so anyway, because the Beit HaMikdash is something that the Mishkan didn't have, I would think about Mishkan, lo yehichayev, that you wouldn't be liable for contaminating the Mishkan. Or therefore it says Mishkan, or Mikdash, and therefore it has to say both. Because if it said only one, each one has a certain severity that the other one doesn't have, and I wouldn't know it applies to both. But the point is that we see from Rabbi Lazar in this Brayta that he requires the two Pesukim to tell you that this prohibition applies by both Mishkan and Mikdash. So how can we use the extra, say that it's an extra Pasek, because it repeats it, to teach you that it applies to even when a person became Tameh in the Beit HaMikdash, like the Gemara said previously. So to that, the Gemara says, no. Rebbe Lazar haki This is what Rebbe Lazar was bothered by. And he was saying like this, granted, that the Torah really, from the fact that it wrote, wrote Apostolic two times, we learn out that it applies to even Tuma within. But he says, you know what, Michdei, let's examine it. Mishkan Ikre Mikdash, we find, and the Gemara is going to prove this momentarily, that the Mishkan also is referred to as the Mikdash. U Mikdash and the Beit Mikdash, Ikre Mishkan, was sometimes called the Mishkan. So Nikdav, when the Torah, the Torah, okay, had to write it twice to teach you that halacha of becoming coming inside, but it could have written O E D V E D Mikdash, it could have wrote by both Psukim the word Mikdash, O E D V E D Mishkan, or by both Psukim Mishkan. Mishkan u Mikdash Lamali. Why did it change? Why did it change the the um the wording? Shemamina. From here we learn out Tarte two halacha. We learn one halacha from the fact that the pasuk is written twice, and another halacha from the fact that it changed the the wording from Mishkan to Mikdash. Okay, and therefore both halacha can be learned out. So now he just mentioned that Rav Lezer mentioned, or the Gemara mentioned in, in explanation of Rav Lezer, that the Mishkan was also called the Mikdash, and the Mikdash was also called the Mishkan. So he goes on to say, Mikdash, Ikre, Mishkan, we find that the Beit HaMikdash was called the Mishkan, Dichtiv, because it's a Pasuk in Parshat B'Kukotai. It says, talking about the future, there's the end of Sefer Vayikra, mm-hmm. and it's talking about the future, it says, V'natati Mishkani B'Tochachem, I will place my Mishkan amongst your midst. No, he can't be referring to the Mishkan because the Mishkan was already ex- in existence. Mm-hmm. So he's talking about the future of Beit HaMikdash. And we see he refers to it as a Mishkan. But he says, El Abad, the Mishkan, the Ikre Mikdash, Minawan. For where do we derive that the Mishkan was also referred to as, the, as a Mikdash? 
So he says, anyway, maybe you're going to say midiktiv from a pasuk in Bangotan. Bangotan is describing the different jobs of the Levim. You know, the Levim would carry the Mishkan through the Midbar when they traveled. And, you know, there are three families of Levim, and they each had a different job. So it says here, Vinasu HaKahatim, right? Kahat was one of the sons of Levi. So the, his children, his family, <coughs> what was their job? No say HaMikdash. They would carry the Mikdash. So it's referring to the Mishkan. It says Mikdash. So we see that Mishkan is called Mikdash. He says, no, 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 no. Hahubi Aron Ketiv. That's because the Kahat, they would carry the Aron. And we, what do we refer to the Aron? The Aron HaKodesh, right? It's holy. They carried, they, they carried the most holy part of the, of the tabernacle, of the Mishkan. And that's why it uses the word Mikdash. It's not referring to the Mishkan as a whole. It's referring to the holiest part of the, of the Mishkan, the Aron. And therefore... We, that can't be the source. So, Ella, rather, it's Mihacha. It's from here. At the, at the beginning of Parsha Truma, this is actually a well known Pasuk, right? Hashem comes and gives the command to build the Mishkan. What does he say? Asuli Mikdash. Make for me a temple, Vishachanti Bitocham, and I will dwell within it, amongst you. I will dwell amongst you, And right afterwards it says, According to what I will show you, the form of the Mishkan. So he's talking about the Mishkan, and he called it a Mikdash. So we see the Mishkan is referred to a Mikdash. Mikdash is referred to a Mishkan. They're interchangeable. And therefore, we don't need two psukim to to make sure that we know that the halachot right. are for both. And right. therefore, we can learn something else from the two psukim. That's, the That's right. We learn both those halachot. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, two dots. Another quote from the Mishnah. So the Mishnah, again, talking about if a person became Tameh within the Beit HaMikdash, so he has to get out of there as quick as possible. So, but if you tarry, he'll become liable to bring the Korban, right? The, the variable um, sin offering. So what was the time you had to stay there to become liable? You either bow down, or you waited, you tarried the time it takes to bow down. Now, it's very interesting, if you think about it, if you bow down, you're seemingly staying there the time it takes to bow down. So really the Mishnah could have just said, you wait the time it takes to bow down, whether you bow down or not. Mm-hmm. So rather, the Gemara understands, therefore, there are really two different things. There's, there's t- two types of bowing. There's a very fleeting type of bowing, and then there's a more elaborate bowing. And what the Mishnah is saying is if you either do the fleeting type of bowing, the minimal bowing, right, even if you don't wait too long, you're going to be liable, or if you wait the time it takes to do an elaborate bowing. Okay, so on that, Amr Rava, Rava says, that which it said, that you will be liable for a minimal bowing, Loshana was, he makes a qualification here, Loshana Ella, it was only taught, if you bow towards the inside, meaning towards the Kodesh HaKadoshim, towards the west, that was in the western part of the Beit HaMikdash, if you bowed west, a minimal bowing would make you liable. If you bowed a minimal bowing towards the east, outward, then you're not going to be liable automatically for the bowing. Then it's only shaha in, lo shaha lo. It's only if you delayed, right, the amount of time it takes to do elaborate bowing, but if you didn't delay, you're not going to be liable. So minimal bowing is only a minimal bowing if it's to the west. Now, I'm sorry, there are those who who taught Rav's qualification not on that first part where it says that you bowed, but in the next line where it says you delayed. And how does and how, how does it go there? As follows. It said in the Mishnah, if you delayed, right, the amount of time it takes to do a bowing. which infers the Hishtakava Gufa, right, by Shia. That 
that, uh, right, that bowing itself requires time, and therefore, right, again, the same conclusion that it's unspoken in Gemara, the same conclusion I came to before, that the, the bowing you're obligated for is a, is a less elaborate bowing. And on that, Amar Rava, Rava says, well, Shana Ella, that inference that you're making is only, only taught, when is it that you have to delay to become liable, right? When, when is it that you need to do a, an elaborate type of bowing, you, right? Is if you're bowing towards the outside, you're, you're bowing east. If you're bowing inside to the west, even if you didn't do an elaborate bowing, you didn't delay at all, Right, you're still going to be liable. This is how you read the Mishnah. If you either do a simple bowing to the inside, to the west, or you delay the amount of time it takes to do a bowing, what kind of bowing? The only type of bowing, the type of bowing that you would need right, if you're bowing outward to the east. Then you're going to be really, high, meaning an elaborate. Time, was there any time you needed to bow to the east? No, no. But what he's saying is, is what, 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 why I said that in order to be liable for tarrying, for a bowing, right? So we say if, if it's, you bow to the west, you then it's, it doesn't matter how long about, it took you. You bow to the east, which was not the way to, that you were supposed to bow. You're right. But if, they, if a person would, he's only going to be liable if it was an elaborate bowing. So, so it's, yeah. a, it's an amount of time. Yeah. There were two different versions of Rav's statement. They really both say the exact same thing. It's just that in the first one, he was qualifying the first line of the first phrase of the Mishnah. The second approach, he was qualifying the second line of the Mishnah. That's all. But um, they really come out the same way. But now the Gemara wants to know, we've talked about two different types of bowing. Tell me, what is the case of bowing that has a delay in it, an elaborate bowing. And what's in the case of bowing that has no delay? So the Gemara explains the late Bashiya, the one that doesn't have any delay, is Zukriyabama. That's just kneeling. A mere kneeling, right? You put your knees on the ground. That's what Kriya means. It's with the it's with the knees. And that's it. The eat Bashiya the bowing that requires more delay is pishut yadayim veraglayim. It's literally going, prostrating yourself, spreading out your hands and your legs, right, your hands and your feet, right, completely in a, um, <clears throat> in a full bow. V'kama shirshia, so how, how long does this take? Let's get it exact. So, you know, the Gemara never talks in seconds or minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Gemara always comes up with a different type of way of um, measuring. And it says, There was a, a dispute about this, um, how long this is between Rav Yitzhak Bar Nachmeni and the one that was with him. Umanu, who was the one that was with him? Rabbi Shimon ben Pazi. Others say, no, no, no. It was Rabbi Shimon ben Pazi v'chadi imei. It was Rabbi Shimon ben Pazi, and it was one that was with him. Umanu, who was the one that was with him? Rabbi Yitzhak bar Nachmeni. Right, both versions the same thing again. It's just like, who was the Ikar? Who was the, the most important of the two? And who was like his colleague? Mm-hmm. And then Amrila, there's an, actually a third version that said, no, who was with Reb Shimon Mbazi? It was Reb Shimon Bar Nachmeni. It was, a third, it was another person altogether. Okay, but be that as it may, there is a dispute where we don't know who said what, but we know that Khan Amr Kememra, the high Pesukah. One says, you know how long you have to wait? The amount of time it takes to say the Pasuk, that the 
we're going to quote in a moment. Okay? V'chan Amr, no. And the other one says, it's Kimi V'yikra with Seifa. It's from the word V'yikra, and he bowed in that Pasuk to the end, mm-hmm. which is sort of in the middle of the Pasuk. What's the Pasuk? It's a Pasuk in Divri HaYamim, in Chronicles, um, which is discussing when they um, first um, built, Shomo first built the first Beit HaMikdash, and it talks about bowing. Right, appropriately. And the Pasuk says, V'kobanei Yisrael, the entire Jewish people, Rowan Beredet Ha'ish, they saw when the fire came down, L'kavod Hashem Alabayet, and the honor of Hashem was over the structure of the Beit HaMikdash, V'yikru'u Apayim, and they bowed with their faces, Artsah, on the ground, Ala Ritzpah, on the floor, V'yishtakavu, and they bowed, V'hodot Hashem, and they gave thanks to Hashem Kito for He is good. Kiwi Olam Chaso for His kindness is lasting forever. So um, I don't know how long it takes to say that pasuk. It's kind of an imprecise um, shear, it's an imprecise measurement. But one opinion is you have to, at the time it takes to say the whole pasuk. The other is from Vayikru, which is about half of that time. Okay, the Gemara today's daf concludes with the discussion that we find three different types of bowing. Spoken about in Pesukim and by Chazal, and it's going to define the three. Well, it may be imprecise because it means it's the amount of time it takes you to, to read that. <laughs> so it have to be you. like the average person, Which or, is, no, no, not no, the no. Israeli. No, no, no. no but that, that you are Chayav when it's the amount of time that it would take you to do that. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. You're saying it's subjective. But um, typically, halacha is on the average man. Right? Yeah. Like, what's the average that a, yeah. the average person would do yeah. something? That's usually how you. Yeah, it, it bothers me. Like that, it bothers me to say it's so subjective, because generally we do say it, we say we'll say, you use like an average. I don't know what the average would be, but usually it's subjective. We, we do sometimes have subjectivity, but it's for a reason. Like by Yom Kippur, what's the amount that you, you can eat to be liable, right, for breaking your fast? Is a your a cheekful, and that's subjective, because. We say that whatever your cheekful is, that's when you reach a certain level of satiation. So there it makes sense for it to be um, subjective. But over here, this is seemingly like an objective standard. That's why we think. I mean, you may Yeah, be, but you could make the... Well, <coughs> we could discuss it another time, but it's, <laughs> you can make the argument that uh, there's a man who, who, who is an older person. It takes longer for him to, to go. Are you going to make him liable because he can't run out as fast as a young man? Right, it's a good point. Well, I certainly there would always, there was always dispensation when a person can't do something that they've given you know a certain dispensation. It's onus. It's you know circumstances beyond their control. But um, you know, yeah. yeah. But did, did the old person also speak slower? You know, sometimes, sometimes, maybe. yeah. Sometimes, <laughs> I don't know. Okay, let's finish up. Yeah. It says Tanu Rabbanan, right? The rabbis want to write the kida. Kida is a type of bowing. What does it mean? Alapayim. It means on your face, but it doesn't it doesn't mean like regular where you lie down, you put your face down. It means your the gemara in sukkah explains that you're suspending yourself up with your thumbs. You're doing a thumb stand, and you, you're lying like flat, like this. I'm not going to try it. And you put your, your face down on the floor. The Gemara over there actually says that there was one of the Amariah, Levi, one of the rabbis in the Talmud, he tried this, and he actually injured himself quite seriously. So not everybody knew how to do it. Mm-hmm. But that's what, what Kida means. And we see this in the Pasuk. It was the beginning of Malacham. If you remember, we had this in Haftorah recently. Batsheva came to Shlomo HaMelech, Right to make sure it was after Adoniyahu mm-hmm. proclaimed himself to be king. Right to make sure that no Shlomo was going to become king as he was promised, as she was promised. But and it says there Batsheva Eretz that she bowed to the king with her face to the floor, 
So kida we see is face to the floor. Kriya, what's that? Al birchayim. That's the knees. Vekenu omer, and it says mikroa al birchav from from bowing on your knees. So we say it's it's your knees. It's kneeling. And hishtakava, what is that? That's the foes who pishet yadayim v'ragayim. That's spreading out your hands and, and feet. We're basically prostrating oneself. Vakein omer, as we read, actually this is last week's parsha, right? Vayeshev, right? When Yosef had the second dream, that he said that he saw that the 11 stars and sun and the moon were bowing down to him, Yaakov rebuked him. Right, he says, Havonava will come, Anivi Imcha, myself and your mother, Vachicha and your brothers, Hishtakava, Wacha Artsa, to bow down to you to the ground, to the ground, and Rashi says, implies like a full bowing on the ground. So we see that's what Hishtakava means. Those are the three things. So I was thinking, you know, we say an Oleno, Vanachnu Korim and Mishtakavim. Korim is the Neo, Hishtakava is like so we don't do the whole thing, but it would seem to me that what you're really supposed to be doing, you say Yamnachnu Korim, you should go like this. And then so Yom I Kippur. Was, I, I was yeah. Uh, Yom Kippur, we do that. Right. But all year long, what do people do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they but, just bow their head. But I remember being taught. I don't remember by whom, but one of my in, in <clears throat> Hebrew school. Yeah. That That's exactly what you were supposed to do. I was right. taught specifically: yeah. bend your knees at Korim, bow at Mishtachavim. You know, I tell you, I, I've made an observation. I, I mean, it seems you seem to be right. And the observation is as follows: If you look in in, in the shul. Right. The women do that, but most men don't. You're right. It's, it's interesting. I Not think that I look over the chitzah, yeah, but you're right. But the women all do it. I know, like in yeshivot, nobody right. did it. Like they just, so you're right about that. that, women, that that's women, always, it's very true. Women bow their, bend their knees, but yeah. the women don't. <laughs> so you know why you might do that? 